Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. On the science revolution this week, what's the truth on coronavirus testing? And why Trump has refused to accept the World Health Organization test that the entire rest of the world is using? Melinda St. Louis is here on how the insurance industry's conduct is outrageous on the coronavirus epidemic. Robert Weissman joins in on how Public Citizen and 70 organizations are calling on Trump to prevent Big Pharma from profiteering on the coronavirus. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear stops by about the ongoing Fukushima disaster. And in Geeky Science, find out what happens if you walk just 30 minutes a day. Check it out. Tom Hartman here with you. I am broadcasting from home today out of just an absolute abundance of caution because we don't have any testing kits. And I think we all need to take this seriously. In a way, I'm trying to provide an example, Nate and Sean, and trying to figure out if it's even possible for all of us to work from home to remotely run our show. This is the starting point. And, you know, just in case, I've been on a bunch of airplanes in the last couple of weeks. That's a risk, I suppose. You know, all of us just all need to be taking this very, very thoughtfully and carefully. Tom Hanks and his wife were in Australia. He said, we felt a little tired, like we had colds and some body aches. Rita, his wife, had some chills that came and went, slight fevers. So being in Australia, of course, you know, you can walk into any clinic anywhere and get an instant virus test. And so they walked in and they got a virus test and it came back positive for both of them. Now, of course, in the United States, you can't do that. You've got to be really, really sick, which means that you've already gone through a week and a half of shedding viruses all over around everybody you know. And then if you also have the flu, you won't get tested. And, and odds are, you know, no matter what, you may not get tested. This is just really mind-boggling stuff. You know, I've mentioned I've got two kids who are in primary health care here in Portland. And one of them just texted me this morning. Community spread here in Portland is starting to really accelerate. We're, we're getting a lot of reports. I think without being hysterical, it's time for us to get very concerned and take this very seriously. And if you can work from home, do it. Essentially self-quarantine for a while, until, at least until the United States catches up with the rest of the world in terms of testing. This is the thing, why can't we get tested? Last night on uh, Rachel Maddow's show on, on MSNBC, she had on Ron Klein. Ron Klein is the guy who President Obama had put in charge of o Ebola. He was uh, Obama's Ebola czar. And when she said to him, you know, why is it that, you know, in, in South Korea, they got drive up. I mean, you want to get tested? It's like driving through the bank, right? Or driving through the local coffee place. You just drive up. They stick a swab in your mouth, stick it in a tube, put your name on it, and you drive off. The person taking the test is not exposed to you and you're not exposed to other people who might be positive. 
And as a consequence of doing this now, South Korea has tested a couple hundred thousand people or over a hundred thousand people. I think maybe it's over 200. I'll find the numbers here as we go through the information. As a consequence of doing this, South Korea has actually seen the numbers of infections start to level off and, you know, they're starting to get control of the situation. But you can't have control of the situation when you don't know who's sick. The average time from the time a person is infected until the time they show symptoms is five days, but it can be as much as 14 days. And during much or most of that period of time, you're actually shedding viruses and spreading them around. You know, thinking of my flights on the airplanes, yesterday there was a uh, there was an article in one of the science journals about how they have now figured out the surfaces that are the most hostile and the least hostile to these viruses. I was telling you yesterday that Federal Reserve is refusing to take currency, U.S. dollars, repatriated U.S. dollars, U.S. dollars that are coming back from China. The Federal Reserve is saying, no, we don't want them. China is burning their own currency and printing new currency because they believe that the, the, the disease can be passed by a currency. So this article that I was reading yesterday was answering the question, can I get the coronavirus from my mail or from the package that Amazon drops off? And it turns out that on cardboard shipping containers and things like that, the virus can last up to a day. On plastic shipping containers and the stuff inside the shipping container, if somebody who was infected handled it and put it in there, on plastic, it can last typically one to two days. And the surface that the coronavirus likes the most, because it's completely inert, doesn't mess with it, it doesn't like copper. In copper, it can only last four, four hours. But the, the surface it likes the most is stainless steel. And I'm thinking, what's, most, what's the, the, most, the thing that I'm most in contact with that's made out of stainless steel? Oh yeah, seatbelt buckles on airplanes. And how many people have handled that seatbelt buckle before I did in the last three days? And how many times has that seatbelt buckle been sterilized by the airline? I guarantee you, it's zero, right? Maybe not now, maybe they're starting to, but I mean, this is, uh, I think we all need to get a little OCD here. Rachel Maddow was asking Ron Klein, who was, as I said, Obama's Ebola czar. She was asking Ron Klein, why don't we have testing kits? Why is it that we can't identify these people who might be working in the Amazon storage place or might be delivering your food from Grubhub or whatever or might be the person sitting next to you at work who's just feeling a little under the weather like Tom Hanks was or has just had a, you know, a little fever a couple days ago and some chills and it went away like Tom Hanks' wife did. Why is it that we can't identify these people? Why can't I walk down to my CVS and just say, you know, I feel a little under the weather. Would you stick that swab in my mouth and see if I've got the coronavirus? And they could do it and they could say, nope, you don't have it. Or yes, you do. You need to go home and lock the doors. You know, or, or, you, know you know what I mean? Don't infect other people. Why? Well, Ron Klein, Obama's czar, you know, for the Ebola crisis, said that uh, the word that he used was that Trump, quote, privatized the testing here in the United States. That was, that was the word of the phrase that Ron Klein used. In fact, we went back and played it a second time to make sure I got it right. He said that tests that Trump had privatized these two were from two companies, Quest Labs and LabCorp here in the United States, big testing companies, very profitable testing companies probably testing companies that kick a lot of money into the, the pockets of politicians, maybe even Republican politicians, who knows. 
But instead of test of taking the World Health Organization test kits, which are manufactured in three different countries now, and they're available all over the world, they're cheap, they work, they're fast, rapid results. You don't need reagents and all kinds of wacky stuff, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Instead of taking those World Health Organization tests, because that's government stuff, right? Trump decided to privatize it. And so for three months now, we've known that this virus was coming. We've known that it's here, actually, for two and a half months. And we can't test anybody. We've tested fewer than 5,000 people nationwide. Now you've got states like Washington State coming up with their own tests and saying, you know, screw the federal government, we're going to do it ourselves. And these two companies say that they're going to have tens of thousands of test kits available real soon. Remember last week, Mike Pence said it would be this week? (laughs) I don't see any. And then this raises the question, you know, Alex Azar is the head of HHS, which arguably would be in charge of a lot of this stuff. He's the, the health guy, Health and Human Services. Before that, the reason that Trump picked him for that job is because he used to be the CEO of Lilly. Lilly, when he was CEO of Lilly, he doubled the price of insulin. That was his main claim to fame, Alex Azar. So the question I'm asking and wondering, do Trump and Azar own stock and Quest and LabCorp? Is that what this is about? On the line with us, Melinda St. Louis, the campaign director of Medicare for All campaign that is part of Public Citizen. Citizen Citizen.org is the website. Her Twitter handle is Melinda Pubcit, P-U-B-C-I-T, and of course, public underscore citizen. Melinda, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. Great to be here. Thank you. I heard the president, and I thought I heard him say in his address to the nation a couple nights ago, but but I certainly heard him say when he was uh, having his little roundtable with the insurance company executives and brought the news media in that he had directed the insurance industry or they had volunteered or whatever to cover all the costs, no co-pays, no deductibles, for uh, coronavirus testing and treatment. Is that the case? Did I hear that right? Well, that is what did come out of his mouth, and yet that does seem to be a mischaracterization of what our for-profit insurance system is willing to do. We immediately afterward, the lobbyist from the largest health insurance lobby made clear that they had agreed to testing, but not to waive copays and deductibles for treatment, uh, and and so that was. You know, either they were contradicting him or it was a mischaracterization. And, you know, I think it's really just lays bare just how greedy our for-profit health insurance, health supposed health care system is, that they are continuing to make clear that they intend to profit off of uh, coronavirus treatment in the middle of a pandemic. Well, the distinction that I think that people who are opposed to Medicare for all keep missing and I'm baffled as to why, particularly Democrats who are opposed to Medicare for All keep missing this, is that the health insurance industry, to call it the health insurance industry is a misnomer. These are not people who have any credentials with regard to health. These are bankers. They're taking in enormous amounts of money. They're skimming 10, 20, 30 percent off the top and putting it in their own pockets. The last two CEOs of United Healthcare, the first one, Bill McGuire, took $1.6 billion in total compensation. Stephen Helmsley followed him and took, I believe it was over $800 million in compensation. These guys are getting, and, and there's over 100 people working at United Healthcare who make over a million dollars a year. These guys are getting rich. And all they do is pay our bills. They just write checks. They're bankers. They're not health people. Or am I missing something? 
That is exactly right. And in fact, they're their business model is to take in obviously more in premiums than they pay out in services for services. So there is enormous incentive to deny care in our for-profit um, health supposed health care system. And what we know, what that means is that fully one third of our health care dollars, so, you know, we spend double what most other countries, comparable countries spend on health care, and our outcomes are dead last on almost every indicator. Well, that's because a fully one third of what we spend goes into CEO pay, goes into profits for shareholders, etc. When you really think about it, the idea that anyone would earn a profit over health care, um, basic health care, and now laid even more bare in the context of this public health emergency is an outrage. And I think what we're seeing is that even those who have been opposed to Medicare for All do find themselves realizing that we do need that in the context of the coronavirus, because health care should be a human right, but also if your neighbors don't have access to testing and treatment and vaccines when they become available, that means that we are in a much more dangerous position than other peer countries in being able to combat this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think, probably the most shocking part of this. And I was surprised this morning, looking at the news reporting on this, that nobody was pointing this out. Essentially, what the health insurance industry just said to the American public, because there's very, very few people who have no co-pays and no deductibles. Very few, I'm guessing probably fewer than 5% of Americans have policies that have no co-pays and no deductibles. So basically what the health insurance industry said to the American public was, if you think you might have the coronavirus, and if you can't afford that $50 or $100 copay to go to the doctor to find out, or if you get sick and you actually need treatment from your physician or from a hospital, don't go, don't get treatment, don't check it out because we're not going to cover the co-pays and deductibles and you're going to have to pay for them out of pocket and 40% of America can't handle a $400 expense, more than half of Americans can't handle a $1,000 expense. The average insurance deductible, even with the Obamacare plans, is, uh, I believe, between three dollars and $5,000. You do this for a living. You probably know better than I do. But isn't that basically the message that they're conveying to Americans now? Well, absolutely. I mean, we already know that already one in three adults report that they do not seek care that they need due to cost. So that's before the coronavirus. We also know that some of the early people who went to get testing got hit with surprise bills for of upwards of $3,000. Uh, so that is, you know, that is, and the insurance company initially said that they weren't going to pay that. So people, everyone in the United States has a story about fighting with their insurance company. And so if you have a question and you're worried that you might end up um, as one of the half a million Americans who, has, who goes bankrupt um, due to medical debt, you're going to think twice and you're not going to get the care you need and particularly the preventative care you need or the testing that you need. And that puts us, again, at an enormous uh, disadvantage in trying to combat something as virulent as this coronavirus pandemic. And the insurance companies just made very clear, no, no, we, are, we intend to continue to profit off of, off of treatment for coronavirus. Now, Trump also said, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought for sure he said when he was sitting there with all those insurance industry executives, no more surprise billing. 
they're walking that back here now, too. Did they lie to him or did he lie to us? Do we know? Well, with surprise billing, there are currently 10,000 Americans every day who receive a surprise bill. And just to be clear what that means, what that is, is people who have insurance go to an in-network hospital, they do the research, they go to the hospital that is in their network, and then there happens to be a provider at that hospital that is not covered in their network. And then they get a surprise bill for hundreds, thousands, up to tens of thousands of dollars. Um, if you have a surgery or uh, if you go to the uh, emergency room, you are, are likely to be hit with these uh, surprise bills. It's, an out, it's completely outrageous. And yet Congress hasn't even been able to close this outrageous loophole um, due to immense spending by private equity firms that have gotten in on the game that, that are actually putting providers into hospitals outside of networks, and their business model is to just surprise bill um, uh, patients. And, and we've already seen examples of that happening uh, for, so, uh, for people seeking a treatment for coronavirus. Just to clarify, it sounds to me like what you're telling me is that these private equity companies, like you know, Mitt Romney's business model, right, that they are buying up hospitals. Now they can run these hospitals, and they're saying, you know, somebody's going to come in for an appendectomy or for uh, you know, knee replacement or whatever it may be, and they're going to call and say, uh, you know, does, does my insurance company, is your hospital in the network? Uh, we'll say yes, all's good. They come in. But we're going to put an anesthesiologist you won't even see until you're unconscious or we're going to put you know somebody that the patient's never going to interact with or a piece of machinery or a piece of equipment into that hospital that won't be covered by the insurance company just so we who own the hospital can send that person a ten thousand dollar bill and increase our profits is that what you're saying well, we're seeing we're seeing that happen with private with hospitals, but they, we also see private equity actually like running networks of providers. So actually, having uh, um, uh, doctors would actually be employed by a private equity company and then work as contractors in even public hospitals and even other hospitals. Oh my God! So so you but and they are and they are necessarily not in network. Um, so and it's I mean it. It's, it's almost like boggles the mind that this can actually be happening. Um, and yet right. we're, it's happening extraordinarily common. It's very common now. And, um, and they are using um, and, and now using campaign contributions uh, to uh, congressional leaders. They're trying to even block even modest action. And so that's why we know we need a Medicare for all system that would provide everyone with the health care without any. Yeah, I'm with you. Melinda St. Louis, she's the campaign director for the Medicare for All campaign at publiccitizencitizen.org. Melinda Pubsit. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you very much. Let's check in with Robert Weissman, our old buddy, the president of Public Citizen. Citizen.org is the website, and you can tweet him at public underscore citizen or at Rob underscore Weissman. Robert, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. I am reading stories that Trump is an investor in some of these private pharmaceutical companies that might be manufacturing coronavirus test kits. Apparently, that's from his disclosure forms from two years ago. I don't know if it's still the case. South Korea has tested, what, 180,000 people? And we have tested, we don't know because the CDC doesn't publish anymore, but probably fewer than 1,000 in the United States, is that 
Reaganomics, essentially. It's this neoliberal belief that government can't do anything right, so you just you don't do anything until the disaster is so great that there's an opportunity for a private corporation to make a lot of money, and then you wait for the private corporation to jump in and, and fix things. This has been sold to us in a whole bunch of other areas over the years, and in many, I think, kind of a libertarian ideology. What's going on with all this? And what are you guys looking into in these contexts of instead of helping the middle class or the poor, is Trump trying to help himself and his buddies? Yeah, well, this is obviously a really big deal, and it's going to get a lot bigger. And so there's layers of the issue. I think on the testing side, the real problem was incompetence and blunders at the Centers for Disease Control, which I think reflects bad leadership by the, the head of the CDC, who was a bad appointment by the president. And also something that no one can really explain, which is why the CDC insisted it had to develop its own kits rather than relying on ones that have been developed in other countries, including in South Korea, as you say. So that's, that's public health very significant. I don't think there's big profiteering going on in that space. But at the other end of the spectrum, there is potentially a huge amount of money in a coronavirus vaccine. We've done some deep dives into who's been doing research on coronaviruses, and the answer is it's almost been done entirely by the U.S. government since 2002. The National Institutes of Health has spent about $700 million That's on coronavirus R&D since SARS broke out in 2002, and very little done by the private sector. There are a few companies that are doing work in this space, but they are themselves relying on government grants. $700 million is a lot of money, but if you actually understand how the pharmaceutical companies count their claims when they say they're doing work on R&D where they do all kinds of adjustments for the risk of failure and the cost of capital and counting interest, lost interest rate and stuff like that, it would be at least 10 times that figure. So there's a lot of federal money that's gone into coronavirus R&D work. We're going to get a vaccine. It's going to take a little while. But the question is, will that vaccine be licensed exclusively or given over as a monopoly to one company? And will the government pay the manufacturers of that vaccine the cost of making it and some small profit? Or are they going to let them charge monopoly prices? And we're very worried about how that's going to go. Wasn't the this an Secretary issue? The of Health and Human Services has said, look, we really can't interfere with innovation. How can we put some reasonable price controls on it? And the answer is the innovation is all being done by the federal government anyway. So you're just talking about giving away monopolies for no purpose if you don't put some price controls and license down exclusively. Wasn't this an issue in the debate around this $8 billion piece of legislation to, to fund you know, a response to the coronavirus? And, and I, I believe that the Democrats in the House were trying to include language in that legislation that would prevent basically price gouging or, or crisis profiteering by pharmaceutical companies. Did that survive or not? It was a part of the fight, and the answer is no, it didn't really survive. There is language in about trying to ensure reasonable and fair pricing, but it says the Secretary of Health and Human Services should use the authority that he already has to achieve this objective. So it doesn't add anything at all, and it includes some worrisome language. It says, yeah, he should do that, but he should make sure he doesn't do anything to slow the development of a, of a vaccine, which, of course, he shouldn't slow the development. But Farm will try to use that language as an excuse to block any efforts to control and 
maintain reasonable prices. I understand we're talking to Robert Weissman, the president of Public Citizen, Citizen.org. I understand that your organization has joined with 70 other organizations across the country, basically calling for Trump not to allow big pharma to profiteer on the coronavirus. What are the mechanisms available to us to you as the president of this group and, and the other groups, to us, to people like me as, as just citizens, calling legislators, uh, writing letters to the editor. What are the mechanisms available to us to try to either A, put some teeth into that, or B, if it has to be you know, moral persuasion, uh, do it effectively? Yeah, well, I think the more we talk about it, the better it's going to be. And it's so it is true that Secretary Alex Azar, the head of HHS, could solve this problem on his own if he were so inclined under his existing authority. It would be better if there was a congressional mandate, because I don't think we want to rely on the, the Trump administration. I'm hopeful, not certain, but I'm hopeful that it's going to go well, first of all, because it would be so outrageous to give away a monopoly in this situation and let price gouging take place that maybe just the public pressure will be sufficient to prevent it from happening. But second of all, it's not just a matter of sort of moral outrage or even justice or even the ability of any individual to get access to a vaccine. It's really about the, the public health need to make sure the vaccine is available to everyone. It just The vaccine itself won't work as a public health intervention unless everybody can get it. And I think that's going to force even the Trump administration, to make sure that we're not price gouged on this. I know that vaccine companies, pharmaceutical companies that manufacture vaccines, have a mind-boggling amount of liability limitation. You know, they've got, at law, a lot of barriers to suing them or holding them responsible. The federal government has set up a vaccination. If you're damaged by a vaccine, the federal government compensates you. It's apparently to the tune of billions of dollars now. Does that have any impact on this? Is the, and, and are, are those laws things that are working or should be revisited? They'll be in place as background facts for this. It's a sort of separate question, but it's not mm-hmm. completely unrelated. It is complicated because, as you know, and as, as listeners know, there have been problems with vaccines, and you do want people to be, and people must be compensated, and you want the companies held responsible. On the other hand, Absent the creation of a a public manufacturing capacity, which would be a good thing, but which we don't currently have in place, we do need companies willing to manufacture. I'm not sure the current system gets the balance so wrong. In any case, I think for for this immediate crisis, which is going to go on for a little while... Um, I guess I was thinking that, 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 you know, if you're a company making a vaccine and you're rolling it out and let's say it's, you know, a new measles vaccine or something, you could take years to do this. There's not a great deal of urgency and you can test it on large swaths of the population and you can see if people who are three years old respond to it way differently than people who are 12 years old or people who are, you know, real prone to, to allergies are more reactive than those who aren't, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all those things. But this is slam, bam, thank you, ma'am. I mean, we're trying to get this thing out, you know, in, in as little time as possible, probably a year, year and a half at the, at the most. Odds are that it will have some side effects or more side effects, or, you know, than, than a normal vaccine, just because it's not so tested so much. I guess so. I guess the subtext of my question was: Are there adequate protections in place on the one hand, and on the other hand, protections for the vaccine manufacturers? On the other hand, are there adequate protections for us who might be getting the vaccine to know that it wasn't done too hastily? That there is some liability. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to. No, at the end of the day, we're going to have to rely on the, the government regulators to to provide the assurances of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as 
as weakened as the the regulatory system is, the Food and Drug Administration and the Center for Centers for Disease Control, I think that there's still a lot of really serious capacity and serious commitment to making sure that something is safe um, before it's rolled out for the general population. So I feel reasonably good about that. Mm-hmm. And it, and you really would want, you, you know, you want that decision to rest with with government, public, with, you know, with public health officials. You don't want the corporations making that decision, um, which I think is right. That, and, and moreover, although you want compensation for somebody who's injured, you don't want to rely on the compensation system as the mechanism to ensure safety. You actually just want to ensure safety. Right. Yeah, you do have issues about, you know, what if, what if something is manufactured poorly? So it wasn't just that the, the vaccine didn't work the way we hoped, but it wasn't made right. Well, you, you do want to hold companies accountable for that kind of thing, because that's, that's really on them. All right. So there's a whole spectrum of stuff here, and it's really important stuff. You can read all about it at citizen.org. Robert Weissman, the president of Public Citizen. Robert, it's always great talking with you. I always learn something. Thank you for dropping by today. Thanks so much, Tom. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know... I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, it, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's NUleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafNaturals.com. Tom Hartman here with you, and very happy to have Roger Hallam. He is a British environmental activist, organic farmer, and most significantly, the co-founder of the Extinction Rebellion. He's also the author of a new book, Common Sense for the 21st Century, Only Nonviolent Rebellion Can Now Stop Climate Breakdown and Social Collapse. Roger, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, thanks. Here in the United States, we occasionally hear a story about Extinction Rebellion, but the vast majority of them are limited to progressive websites. Tell us about the organization, how it came about, and what you all do. Yeah, well, it it came about because a whole bunch of people decided reality is hit and the human race is heading towards extinction in as much as we understand the science. If we're heading for extinction, and this is policy of world governments, then it seems to be justified to rebel against them. So, hence, Extinction Rebellion started off about 18 months ago with 15 people in a room in Bristol in the UK, and now it's in about 70 countries around the world, and uh, over 200,000 people are mobilized in the UK, and it's involved in mass civil disobedience. I, d- I don't... And, uh, Go ahead. Yeah. I don't have a, a, a website here on my notes for Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, if you put that into Google, you'll get to various websites, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so it would depend on what country you're in or that, that sort of thing, because they're... 
That's here. right. Yeah, there's different organizations. Oh, yeah, it's org here for the American version. I see. Okay, <clears throat> cool. So what's, what sorts of uh, rebellion should we be engaging in or do you engage in? Well, in my book, Common Sense for the 21st Century, I'm basically giving my own views. So I'm not speaking on behalf of Extinction Rebellion in this interview or anything. Mm-hmm. Basically, I was planning to come to the United States to promote an argument. And that argument is that the political system is fundamentally incapable of responding to the climate emergency, given the time frame and given the urgency and the extremity of what is objectively required in order to stop putting carbon into the atmosphere and the mechanism through which to change political regimes is through mass civil disobedience and that seems again on the basis of the science or the social science in that case as the most effective way to bring about rapid political change in the shortest time possible when a government's engaged in in genocidal activity. This is, uh, you know, kind of an abstract conversation. Can you give me a specific example of these kinds of actions that you or others have engaged in that have produced a positive result? Or at least started a conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to understand understand the extremity of what we're facing. I mean, a lot of journalists ask me about the tactics and, you know, what we do and what we don't do. And it's very easy to forget that we're actually facing something that human beings have never faced in their history, which is a complete breakdown of the geophysical system, the climate, the climate system. And that's, that's inevitably going to lead to mass starvation, and mass starvation is going to lead to all the things that we read about in the history books, war, slaughter, rape, and, and social breakdown. And that's not some conspiracy theory. It's not some, you know, radical political thing. Uh, I'm a business person. I've been running organic business for 30 years. It's people across the political spectrum have been reading the science, and we've been looking at the science, as you well know, for 30 years now, and every, all the predictions are coming true. And, and so people are in this new emotional situation of realizing that 2 plus 2 does actually equal 4, and... And this hell is coming down the road. Now, only once you've sort of emotionally engaged with that in terms of the grief and the, and, and the depression and the despair, can you start to understand what is required? And obviously what is required is mass disruption to the system that's taking ourselves and most certainly our children to their deaths. And what that involves is mass civil disobedience, which classically speaking, means people going to the large cities or the capital cities and staying there until a government fundamentally changes its policies. And that's the primary objective of Extinction Rebellion. Okay. And Common Sense for the 21st Century, your book is available pretty much everywhere, I'm assuming. George Monbiot wrote a, wrote a great piece on the front cover. Brilliant, wise, profound, and persuasive. Well done, Roger. And yeah, I don't think I don't think to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think I'm saying anything that is intellectually problematic. I agree. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not difficult to to understand the rationale. What's difficult is to engage emotionally with that reality, and and this is this is the whole point behind civil disobedience. That as as we know well know human beings don't respond well to threats in the future. You know, they'll sit there until it happens. And then, of course, mm-hmm. in this case, it'll be too late. So the fundamental argument here is that you have to create that shock to the system before you get the geophysical shock. And that shock, the best way of doing that is to close down 
an economy or close down a city so that everyone starts to wake up to what's happening. Now, initially, of course, they're all going to hate you <laughs> because who wants to have, you know, their trip to work slowed down? But as as as, hap- as happens, when if the cause is just, as you might say, if it's like a no-brainer of what you're saying, then people do come round to the view that this is actually happening because they're actually getting disrupted. And then you get large-scale attitude change. And in the UK, there was 3,000 people arrested last year, which was the biggest civil disobedience event in British history, even bigger than the suffragettes. And, and that created a massive change in public perceptions of exactly how serious this is. Like 55% of the population in Britain now is very seriously concerned about climate change. Now that's doubled, you know, or tripled over the last year or two. And that's primarily because it's been made real because people can see thousands of ordinary people getting dragged off the streets by the police, you know, because they've decided they've had enough. Yeah, we saw this here in the United States in the 1960s with the civil rights movement. And we saw it here in the United States, not in my lifetime, but in the 19 aughts and the 19 teens with the suffrage movement. And uh, in both cases, they led to radical and substantial changes. In the case of the suffragist movement, you know, in 1920, women got the vote in the United States. And in the case of the civil rights, particularly in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, Rosa Parks, the the Montgomery bus bus boycott. uh, I mean, it's just a whole whole bunch of that was probably the most famous led to the the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Acts in 1965 and 66, as I recall, or maybe 64 and 65, but whatever. So, again, it's a bit of a no brainer. There's overwhelming history historical evidence to it. So, I mean, obviously not straight away and not every, obviously in every case, right? You're dealing with right. human societies and what have you. But <clears throat> compared with the alternatives, which is engaging in violence or engaging in, you know, conventional political activity, sending emails and all that sort of stuff that's been going on for 30 years, this is by far the most effective way of doing it. But I think it's really important to understand that this isn't like previous social movements in the sense that... Um, what we're dealing with now is like a cliff edge, you know, yes. e- even though like racism and women's rights and all these things were terrible social issues in time, there were fundamentally linear problems, you know, they weren't getting worse right. by and the And we're year. dealing now so with literally the extinction of the human race. Roger, I'm sorry, yeah, we're, we're right. out of time, but Roger Hallam, uh, his book is Common Sense for the 21st Century. Hang on just this a second. is the Tom Hartman Program. And he's the co-founder of the Extinction Rebellion. You can look it up on your uh, favorite search engine. Roger, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks very much. Some fascinating research that was just released by the American Heart Association. It was done at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine in Rochester, Michigan. Uh, This was a study of several thousand people, 54% female. The average age of the people that was being tested was 69. So this was older adults. But it appears that this is something that is true across the entire spectrum of life. The question was, is this a big deal for older adults? And that was getting just a little bit of reasonable exercise, as in walking. And we're talking 30 minutes of light intensity activity, like walking, on this one study where the average participant age was 69, 30 minutes of light intensity activity, including walking, was associated with a 20% lower risk of dying from any cause. And older adults, that was the average age 79, were 67% less likely to die of any cause if they were moderately physically active for a minimum of 150 minutes each week. 
which would be the equivalent of walking two to 4,000 steps a day. And older women, the average age 79, 38% less likely to die from a heart attack, heart failure, stroke, etc. if they were walking between two and 4,000 steps every day. They said despite popular belief, there's little evidence that people need to aim for 10,000 steps daily to get cardiovascular benefits from walking. Our study shows that getting just over 4,500 steps per day is strongly associated with reduced risk of dying. Taking more steps per day, even if just a few more is achievable, it looks like that whole 10,000 steps thing was first developed by a pedometer manufacturer a company, you know, these companies that measure how many steps you've taken. It's pretty interesting. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.